are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and corporate media. My name is Isha, and I'm your host for the day. Today, we are speaking to Mike Preisner, who is a producer at Empire Files. Hello, Mike. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, so I, so you work for Empire Files. Like, how is it, and how long have you been working there? Yeah, well, um, uh, me and my partner, Abby Martin, <clears throat> started the show Empire Files as um, one of the kind of flagship shows for Telesur English, which, uh, as you may know, is a project of Venezuela, Cuba, uh, Bolivia, all of the um, you know, progressive Latin American countries that came to power in the early 2000s. They started their own independent, uh, non-corporate network called Telesur. And you know, a few years ago, they started English language programming. And so our show, Empire, Empire Files, started in 2015 alongside some other shows on the network, like Chris Hedges and, and others. So we've been doing it since then. You know, we, because of the sanctions by the Trump administration, we were no longer able to get funding from Telesur because the you know, really crippling sanctions that Trump put on, which far surpassed anything Obama ever did in terms of sanctions with Venezuela, really made it impossible for any funds to be wired from Venezuela or partner countries into the U.S. And for about a year, we've been going on an independent basis. But we started out as a Telesur show. Do you want to talk about your quick series on Venezuela? It looked like you started with looking at the opposition mm -hmm. and also interviewing government members. And what else did you do? Yeah, so we went in 2017, which was really at the height of the protest movement there. Now, we know we saw like similar types of you know, Guarimba burning barricade protests in 2014, um, around the time of the other presidential election. But um, this this was much more intense. There were many more deaths, and it was getting a lot more kind of crazy media coverage. And so for us in the U.S., we were seeing, um, you know, the government was completely unpopular. The entire population was rising up to overthrow the PSUV and the Maduro government. And then, of course, the U.S. government was there egging them on and saying that, you know, they have a plan for a, their transition government when the people finally overthrow it and, and all of that. And so coupled with the propaganda about the, the protest movement and how there was just this mass popular opposition to the government, there was kind of these crazy economic problems that were being reported constantly in the United States about the grocery stores were empty, there were people starving, like all of the stories of people were breaking into zoos to butcher the, the zoo animals to eat them, and people were having to eat dogs on the street to survive, uh, and all of these really, you know, unreal stories. And so we went at the height of that uh, because, you know, we wanted to kind of give people in the United States a different view of what was happening because we could surmise just by watching that there is a very specific narrative that was being put out by the corporate press and, you know, other alternative versions of corporate press like Vice News and things like that. Um, you know, really a, a glorification of the protests without looking at what they're actually doing. And so we went, we, we were there for a month in Caracas, going out every day, visiting uh, all across the country, but mainly centered in Caracas there. And so the, the point of our series was to go with the mindset that we were going to look at what the corporate media was saying and, and verifying. A lot of it was going to the opposition protests, pro-government protests, which people never see, going to grocery stores to see the situation of empty shelves, talking to people in various communities from the rich areas to the poor areas. And of course, we were able to interview many people who worked in the government also because uh, we were still with Telesur at that time. We were able to get connected, high-ranking government officials, people working in the economy, people working in the military. So we got to kind of get 
uh, that perspective also of the economic problems and, and the protest movement. And so there's a, a lot to get into there. So it depends on what you want to talk about first. But our, our firsthand kind of experience okay, really I exposed the... Mm -hmm. How do people find you on, to see that series? Sure, so it's on um, youtube.com slash empire files. And if you go to our playlist, we have a whole playlist of all our Venezuela coverage. And so we did about, you know, I think eight or so episodes uh, from Venezuela, which is everything from on the ground with the opposition to going through the supermarkets to verifying the uh, media is all pro-government claim and all of that. Okay, can we start with a little bit of back history of Venezuela so people kind of get the landscape. In 1989, Carlos Andres Perez was elected, mm -hmm. or I guess selected, whatever you prefer <laughs> to call it. How was his rule and just what happened to the economy there? Sure. Well, we have to just, just to preface that, I mean, Venezuela suffered what every other country in Latin America suffered, which was, you know, centuries of colonialism. Um, they achieved some modicum of independence when Simone Bolivar was, was uh, liberating the continent. But, um, you know, it had gone through just a string of kind of, um, you know, puppet type uh, presidents, you know, throughout its modern history. But 89 in Perez, I mean, this is when neoliberalism really started to come and when really the country was just being sold off, not just in Venezuela, but in other countries in Latin America as well that, that weren't going through like a a civil war backed by the US type situation. But the economic reforms that Perez brought in really just kind of caused things to become even more devastated. You know, a country that's already just an underdeveloped country and kind of struggling to emerge from that legacy of colonialism, you know, he was setting things back. And so like the unemployment rate just really skyrocketed. It became, you know, for all of the things that people say are problems in Venezuela today, uh, shortages of food, which are, is a real thing, um, it was nothing compared to that era uh, under Perez. And so there was a, a mass uprising uh, under that because, you know, things had gotten so bad. I mean, if you have unemployment, that's like 50%, you can expect some kind of uh, uprising from the people. And so when that happened, uh, there was a, a really mass uprising um, protesting what, what had happened. And the response of the government, uh, you know, was almost like, they're trying to depict the Maduro government is doing today. They really sent out the military to arrest and kill large numbers of people. And they succeeded in doing that. And that there's really, it's, it, it's an unknown number, but there's estimates that around 3,000 people, 3,000 people were killed um, just in, in a matter of a few days. I mean, this is how they, they crushed that protest. And so, you know, it was interesting talking to people in Venezuela who remember that era because, uh, you know, talking to people from different generations, right? I mean, we were even talking with Telesur employees, I mean, we were talking to people who were, who were younger people who were being more critical of the government uh, than people who were a little bit older, people who were in their 30s and 40s. And I remember one situation where one of the, the young workers there was like uh, kind of complaining about this or that and, and wishing that, you know, things would be different. And then one of the people who was more around, around my age was like, you just don't know. Like, I remember my mom being, seeing my mom being chased to the streets and beaten by the, by the police and, and things like that. And so there's this kind of um, different generations have a different historical memory. And so like those who are growing up post that era, after that, that period, um, don't remember it, it, how bad it actually got in the country. And so those who do remember that era kind of have a more kind of fervent support for pushing the revolution forward because they know really the reality of what Venezuela can be like uh, in the hands of a, a despot like Perez was. Um, I just wanted to uh, remind people, um, uh, 
it happened on, on, in 1989 and for patrons I'll put up a short video of the 1989 protests and the violent crackdown and it seems like in 93 to 94 there was a period of uncertainty mm -hmm. what happened there well so this is when um you know there is because of that you know when you create a massive crackdown like that it really does have an impact on the mass movement i mean we can look to the united states at first you know a similar type of, just think of the occupy movement in the us right it was it was strong it was thousands and thousands of people putting their bodies on the line um, in cities all across the country. It was a real mass, mass movement. And then in a matter of days, when the government decided to come in and just mass arrest thousands of people, beat people, shoot people with rubber bullets, not even kill anyone, but just round people up and put them in jail, it had a real chilling effect and it really killed it for quite a while. And it's never come back because it did have an impact on the minds of people who were protesting that there is a lot of fear and terror uh, of something like that happening again. And so it, it's that, that small amount of violence by the US really killed the movement. And so in Venezuela, it was similar that uh, that extreme use of violence really um, took away any hope that people could uh, rise up on their own or, or anything like that. Um, but this is when Chavez, you know, in the military at the time, a military officer, uh, Chavez started organizing a, a revolutionary faction in the military of left-wing officers. Um, and so when that, that happened, when the, the Curacao and the, the, that mass uprising happened and there was the repression, Chavez realized that uh, they weren't just gonna come to power through an election. He realized that he needed to start organizing like a military coup to, to overthrow this like fascist government because once you start killing thousands of people, whether or not you had an election, that uh, becomes a, a fascism. And so Chavez began organizing uh, uh, within the military. And then he had, at one point, you know, when they, when they did launch their uh, attempt at a coup, um, you know, he had hundreds of officers uh, and junior officers who were, who were a part of this movement. And it was explicitly a, a left-wing, like, Marxist-type, uh, like, grouping of progressive and, and leftist uh, coalition of officers. And so um, they, they made an attempt to actually... Uh, take over the government with military force one day and they had a, a large number of people involved in it um, but it really quickly uh, didn't succeed and Chavez was arrested um, but the popularity of Chavez and the attempt to take power was so so huge I mean even though it failed I mean the people were so inspired and they're so supportive and Chavez immediately became this hero to the people of Venezuela because he was the one that was standing up and trying to take the country back um, but not just talking about overthrowing who was in power, but talking about a new society where it was poor people uh, that were that were going to be in charge. But um, the last thing I'll say about that is that Chavez was so popular after that attempted coup. When, when he was in jail, the presidential election that happened in Venezuela following that, right? There was a range of candidates running for president of Venezuela. Wait, Every um, did, By the presidential election following that, you mean the 94 election, right? The 94 election, that's right. Um, and so every single candidate running in the presidential election had to make it a campaign promise to pardon Chavez if they were elected. And if they didn't make that campaign promise, they had no chance of winning at all. And so Chavez at that point knew he was going to be okay because every single president had to be promising to pardon him as a campaign promise or they didn't stand a chance of winning the election. That was really how popular Chavez had become even before he tried uh, to run for president. Um, can we 
talk a little bit about Chavez? Like, what was his childhood like? Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I mean, Chavez grew up in one of the poorest areas of Venezuela. Um, grew up, you know, like without shoes, like, uh, you know, someone who really had uh, had nothing. And so, but that was, I think, really a, a common experience in Venezuela. And so, um, of course, it was natural that people identified with him because he had uh, had that background. He was just able to have some success and, you know, he joined the military and then was able to rise through the ranks and become an officer, which is like one of the more privileged positions in the military. Um, but he was never someone who sold out, you know, where he came from, even though he had this kind of different lifestyle now being a, a, a military officer, his politics were always shaped by, uh, shaped by that, shaped by his upbringing, shaped by where his family lived, all the people he knew lived, um, and all of that. And so that, I think, uh, really kind of informed his politics, and which is why when he was, you know, campaigning and things like that, his, his point was that the constitution of Venezuela is not a people's constitution. It benefits kind of this tiny, small faction of the country, and that the country didn't just need a new president, they needed, um, they needed a whole way of, new way of doing things, a whole new organization of power, a whole new constitution that was set on, com on completely different terms. Um, but yeah, that's... Okay, um, how was the economy like? like so it seems like there's like a four-year window mm -hmm. with Caldera, did I get that right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, with Caldera as president, how, what was going on with the economy around that time? Um, well, it's like, you know, they were trying to do mild things to kind of quell dissent, things like that. But I think the, the, the main problem with the economy still at that time is it's just was, um, you know, they were, it was just basically a, a ground for some oil companies to make some money. There's kind of a corrupt oil company leadership, but they really weren't expanding development, weren't creating new types of industry, new types of jobs. Um, so it was really just kind of a, a coasting mode where they could continue to make money for themselves, make money for, for big investors from outside the country. Um, but but that, that's, that was, you know, part the economic problems today in Venezuela root from that, the fact that really no industrial development started until Chavez uh, came to power in 99, absent, you know, kind of some small, sm even though they have a lot of oil, really kind of small, undeveloped, uh, even aspects of the oil industry at the time. And so it just remained a, a country that wasn't moving forward, that was stuck in kind of a stagnant state. And then, of course, you know, uh, was subject to the predation of IMF and World Bank and, and uh, the thing that other countries were going through. Because if your economy is going down, you don't have, you're not uh, growing as an economy, then you have to take out big loans. And there were, at that time, there's only one place to get those big loans, and that was, you know, from U.S. banks. Yep, um, it's kind of funny. I am reading a headline from December 1998 mm -hmm. from New York Times, and it says Venezuelan ex-coup leader elected as their president. <laughs> um, but here they said, here's a ch paragraph that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Mr. Chavez, who defeated Yale-educated businessman Enrique Salas Romer with more than 50% of the vote, is the first leader in 40 years that not, has not come from the dominant Venezuela's political party. His meteoric rise among legions of dissatisfied voters smashed the O-line party machine and fanned fears of a leftist dictatorship. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny that the, 
even from the beginning, they were using that term dictatorship, right? Um, but what kind of dictatorship comes to power with an election and stays in power with an election? Especially um, with that kind of landslide where he right. 58% of the votes, it's the opposite. Right. <laughs> yeah, so you see immediately, I mean, it's, it's, so, it's so important you bring that up because that's like one of the number one questions I get today from people who don't follow Venezuela is it's drilled into their heads that, oh, it's a dictatorship, right? Um, and so they were using that language from the outset. But I mean, it's just such a contradiction because it's a dictatorship that wins kind of a vast majority and free and fair elections um, with, with high voter turnout. Um, so yeah, so they, but the reason that they employ that type of language off the bat is because, you know, the, the capitalist powers, the, the Pentagon, um, they, of course, immediately knew that that was a, a threat to them because they want, you know, complete subjugation in the region. Um, and, of course, they knew that the way Chavez was talking, he was not going to be a lapdog to the United States. They, of course, wanted their Yale-educated banker to win because, you know, so many leaders in Latin America at that time and still today are, you know, they're even educated in the United States. They're churned out of these uh, elite schools to run the country in a way that benefits the United States. And so... Uh, that by that time, the Venezuelan people had seen right through that. Uh, and so, of course, that, you know, the only defense that the big powers have is to kind of delegitimize the government, say it's a dictatorship, and then start their uh, methods of regime change. Try any shenanigans, or did they mostly ignore, like, what was their treatment? Yeah. So, uh, from, as I understand, nothing happened at that time, but there also, there wasn't a big it wasn't totally revealed yet what the Chavez okay, government was going to be like. And of course, um, you know, Chavez didn't come to power saying we're going to fight rivers. the United States and confront the United States because that's just a, you know, of course, that's not a smart move to do if you're just taking power and you're not very far from the, the imperialist core. Um, so I think that the, the U.S. at first kind of tried to wait to see what, what was going to happen. So that really the, the clash between the U.S. and Venezuela didn't come until uh, Bush came to power. Um, and Bush is, uh, of course, uh, initiated um, starting and planning regime change efforts in Venezuela, working with opposition groups on the ground. Um, and then, you know, by 2002, had uh, launched a, a coup that was uh, planned and supported with uh, the CIA and, and the Pentagon. Um, and so after that point, uh, it became a, an open confrontation. And so Chavez famously... Wait, um, can we go into a little bit of a detail about that coup? Because it's kind of a... It's kind of funny if you're right. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I mean, the thing I'll say before um, that happened is, is Venezuela went through an extremely profound change when Chavez came into power. So it wasn't just that Chavez came in and said, now we have a president that uh, works for poor people. He, they took all these uh, measures to make it to where poor people actually had power. And the way that they did this was they scrapped the old constitution. They just got rid of it. They said the old constitution is gone. We're gonna make a new constitution. And the way we're gonna make this new constitution, is every single person in the country is gonna be part of writing, approving, re uh, revising this new constitution. And so it initiated like the most democratic process ever seen on the continent possibly in, in modern history where every single uh, small locale had meetings uh, on a small level to a larger level, where they would uh, write things that they wanted to see in the Constitution. And we're talking a Constitution that guarantees uh, social rights, uh, economic rights, housing rights, all of these things as rights written into the Constitution. And so people all across the country 
took part in these mass meetings where they wrote what they wanted to see in the constitution. And then these were all compiled and then a draft constitution was put out that included all of the, the demands and wishes of people that they voted on, a, on local levels. And then when the draft constitution went out, people read it and they, they, uh, had, they wanted things taken out, they wanted things put in, they wanted things reworded and revised. And so it was this really long popular process of people you know, and, and you'll meet people, poor people still, uh, like in the barrios that will be able to point to sentences in the constitution that they personally wrote, that they drafted and motivated for and got accepted by the, the larger local body and, and was voted into the constitution. And then at the end of that process, when they had this final people's constitution, it was put to a popular vote in the country again, so everyone could vote on it. And that constitution was approved uh, by a landslide and a, and a large turnout vote. And so, um, it's important to understand how political power works in Venezuela and how people's consciousness changed when Chavez came in. It stopped being, we're just gonna elect someone who advocates for our interests, but it then became, we are the makers of this society. We are the makers of history. And the president in a way, even though Chavez is a great leader, when you look at today, the president in a way becomes irrelevant because this, this mass movement of people, the, the Chavez movement, became empowered in a different way and became their own political force outside of the uh the executive branch of the government um this so reminds me a little of libya under gaddafi but they went back to an old system of consensus that they had but um can you just quickly go through the uh, how fast like when did they ratify the new constitution and how many months or years did it take for them to write the whole constitution you mean when chavez came into power yeah um, I think it was over a year process uh, that it took. Um, I'm not sure exactly, but it, it was a you know it was an exhaustive process because it was just such a logistical feat to be able to have meet small meetings on a local level and have them build to larger, larger and larger bodies, and then um, be kind of uh, explained on a on a national level. And so, you know, it was a long process, but it was it was just such an exciting time for people in Venezuela because it was like you know imagine. If in the United States, if we just abolished our constitution and started to write a new one and everyone had the right to be a part of writing it. I mean, it was just such an invigorating time in the country when they had only known a period of just like, like subjugation. we could use such a constitution just because of how our current constitution is made. <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, in the US, there's just like this fetish of the constitution that it's like the most sacred thing ever that can never change where like, every other country in the world like they go through new constitutions pretty regularly so it's not like it's it's a crazy thing for americans to conceive of uh or people in the u.s to conceive of but um you know for people in the rest of the world i think it's a more seen as a more normal thing uh but of course in venezuela it was a very profound thing because they had people had never had um a say like like they did at that time so that's so that was the context behind the coup that happened in 2002 is that it wasn't just that Chavez was popular oh, and that- One second. Um, yeah. Can you go over some of the new rights that the people had because of this constitution? Yeah, and so this just, I mean, their um, rights to education was a big one. And so, you know, Venezuela just had such a high illiteracy rate. It was like the worst literacy rate in Latin America at the time. So kind of rights and, and requirements for education became a thing. Um, rights for retirees, you know, there was a very low number of people that could retire and live on a pension before Chavez came in. And so the constitution guaranteed uh, rights for pensioners and, and the elderly, rights for the disabled. Um, you know, it, it guaranteed that uh, like the economic system would be run in an interest that benefited the many. And so the um, removing the ability of just like the 
private corporations to just to hoard everything, but that there had to be um, more nationalization of things. Um, but really, I think the, the biggest thing, the most important thing is, isn't the bread and butter stuff. And of course, uh, mass media likes to point out, oh, Chavez is just popular because he's like giving poor people things, right? And it's just like buying votes. Like, oh, he built a school there, buy their votes, or he's sending- The purpose of a president. (laughs) (laughs) Right. People think it's like- Right. As if that would be bad on its own, right? But like, they always try to depict it as, oh, he's just, you know, he's just buying these votes off because he just like is using corporate money to pay for things for poor people. And that's why it's popular. So those things were things that were in the constitution and and that changed in their Chavez. But I think the most important thing was just the building of new bodies of power. Um, and so like giving, giving communes uh, a commune system that had autonomy, that had their own rights, um, that had their own ability to, to produce and, and have political power. Um, you know, like the local governing body, like just giving more, you know, political and democratic power to people that were in a way independent um, from the government. Uh, you know, I remember back in um, when I first became interested in Venezuela, uh, I was involved in an organization called the Bolivarian Youth in Miami, like in um, 2006. Uh, and all the Venezuelans who lived there, who were, who were pro-government, um, they would have these meetings called Bolivarian Circle Meetings. And I, I attended some of them in Miami. And these were meetings that were happening all over Venezuela, Bolivarian Circles, they were called. And they were just small, like they were study groups and organizing bodies where everyone would just get together, discuss all of the problems of the country, debate them, but then they would be uh, sending uh, recommendations and, and demands and stuff to the government, and the government would listen to them and, and read them and, and try to abide by them. And so just imagine, I mean, comparing that to here, imagine if just in your own neighborhood, you're able to have a, a meet, like say your apartment building, you all get together and have a discussion about the national housing crisis, and then you put forward demands and say, I think that the government, you need to, to give this much money to this thing, whatever, but then the government actually reads it and takes it into consideration and, and acts on it. I mean, these new ways of giving people power were really what was, I think, most important about the Constitution, because it's what let the revolution survive. And I think if it didn't empower people in all these different ways, um, you know, at local, like they call them militias, but the collectivos, the kind of self-organized, bodies of power. I mean, there's all these different ways that people are given power in new ways. And that I think is, if it wasn't for that, the revolution wouldn't be what what it is today. And so it did such good things for the lives of people and improving people's lives, but it also gave people power in a new way, which is why it's succeeding still. And the cost of producing and recording, we need your help. Please become a patron. It is as cheap as $5 a month and you get exclusive access to all our patron-only content. To become a patron, go to http colon slash slash www.patreon.com slash historic underscore Lee. So then um, can you go over uh, the, I actually found a funny New York Times article, but if we have time at the end, we can go over that. But can you go over the 2002 one day coup? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I like that you called it a one day coup. I mean, so yeah, so like just, just think of that context going into this, right? That Travis is extremely popular and people are just like, you know, feeling empowered like they never have before. And they believe the country is going in a, a right direction and that they have a say in it and that things are finally looking up. And then this coup happens um, where Chavez in the middle of the night is kidnapped by 
um, factions of the military, you know, right-wing officers in the military that were working with other opposition figures, and these opposition figures being um, the big business owners, right? I mean, the ones that stood the most to lose, <clears throat> even though Venezuela, the revolution wasn't like it was in Cuba. They didn't have a revolution and then start nationalizing the big businesses and big corporations, right? They were not doing that, but still, of course, the big businesses felt very threatened because they weren't gonna get to operate uh, with the free reign that they used to be able to operate with. And so just the threat of like some like tiny fraction of profits being threatened, maybe um, they, they wanted to overthrow Chavez. And so a right-wing faction of the military, uh, this, uh, this sect of right-wing business owners uh, and the United States, you know, intelligence agencies uh, kidnapped Chavez in the middle of the night, uh, brought him to jail, um, and then they arrested every single member of his cabinet, of his government, uh, government also, not just Chavez, all of the democratically elected people, um, put them all in jail, and then they have a new government all of a sudden. And it, inv it includes all of those, those military people and uh, these big business owners. And then the first thing they did was they announced, uh, we are the new government. The constitution that you all created is in the garbage can. It's no longer our constitution. And we have this new interim constitution. And it included various rights in the Constitution. And of course, the main right that it explained to people was that uh, the oil was going to stay in private hands and wasn't going to be nationalized or used for, for public good. So it really showed what the you know, motivation of the coup was and what the, the politics of the coup was. Um, <clears throat> and so this, and then they, <clears throat> one of the things that they did is they just went and they just uh, shut down every TV station that was reporting on the coup. Right? They did this announcement where they went on TV, said, by the way, we have a new government, Chavez is in jail, everything's going to be fine. And then they just started airing like soap operas and like, you know, things that were not the news. Um, and so word spread pretty quickly that this had happened, even though they had tried to shut down all the media outlets, um, which ironically is like the thing today that they level against the government is that they shut down all dissenting media and don't let dissenting voices on TV and things like that. I mean, that's what the opposition wants to do. That's what they did when they took power. They'd let no TV station report was going on, put on some like whatever garbage television and then pretended like everything was fine. But word spread so quickly throughout the country that Chavez was kidnapped, that people just spontaneously with kind of no um, central leadership, because the central leadership of the PSUV was all in prison, um, they just came out to the streets and just wouldn't leave the streets and started demanding that Chavez uh, be released. And so this, this mass protest movement just swelled immediately um, and within a short period of time. And really what did it was Chavez's supporters within the military, because Chavez had so much respect and love inside the military, particularly among low-ranking soldiers, right? The officers, the privileged high-ranking officers, of course, were more tied to the business class but it was the lower ranking, op lower ranking enlisted people when they saw the mass protests come out and then when they knew that their job was gonna be to repress those protests, they were like, mm, no. And they, they busted Chavez out of jail, they arrested the coup plotters and they reinstalled uh, Chavez and, and everyone else to power. Um, and so it was a very short lived coup, it was an extremely arrogant coup to think that they could just do that and that people were gonna be completely passive, completely arrogant of the US too to, to support it, thinking that uh, it was gonna be successful. Um, but, you know, then, but then that was, Venezuela was defined by that from then on. I mean, they knew that this was a real threat from 2002 till today. They knew that that's what the lengths the opposition partnered with the U.S. will go to. It's not just going to be 
acts of sabotage here and there, but they're, they're willing and capable of actually launching a, an armed insurgency that, that takes power by force and then, uh, you know, suspends democracy and, and things like that. And so there's a variety of things they, that happened from, from that point on. And, you know, like one of the only thing, last thing I'll say about it is that they, um, you would think that when you carry out an act like that, that there'd be repression against you, right? That all the coup plotters would just be in jail for life um, and all of that. But the first thing Chavez said, you know, when he walked into the jail cells of the, the top plotters of the coup, uh, he says to them, he's like, I just want you to know that you are in your trials, you're going to be afforded all of the rights that are afforded to citizens under our constitution. The constitution that they had destroyed and thrown in the garbage, Chavez went in and said, by the way, even though you trash this constitution, it still applies to you. Uh, and we're going to make sure that you're afforded all of your rights in this constitution. And then most of the coup plotters didn't go to jail. I mean, they were all free. And so in fact, you know, like people that are like running for president in the last elections were people that were involved in the coup plot. And so there wasn't this like, dictatorial repression of locking up every, even though it would be justified to put everyone in jail who was a part of that coup, because a lot of people died. I mean, 40 something people died during this, uh, this coup plot. Um, you know, that, that many of them went free and were uh, allowed to still be involved in, in politics in the country. Um, in fact, actually the last thing I'll say about the coup is the way it started was a really sinister, disgusting way. It wasn't just that they seized power in the middle of the night. The part I left out is there is a, a mass, you know, pro-Chavez demonstration, and there is an anti-government demonstration. And then what initiated the coup, which is what the strategy was, is that the opposition people started sniping people in the crowd of the pro-government demonstration, like just shooting and killing people from rooftops. And then they videotaped, and then if there's some Chavistas who, taking fire from rooftops, who had guns on them, started returning fire at some of the, the building tops where there was like military snipers that were shooting people. But the snipers, they killed like 40 something people. But then the opposition, they took all the videos of the Chavistas returning fire at these sniper on rooftops and they edited them to make it look like it was Chavistas opening fire on the crowd of other Chavistas. Um, and then they played that on the news to say, this is why we're launching this insurrection because the, the Chavez people have become so violent and disgusting. And so it wasn't just, you know, the military coming in and saying we should be in charge now. I mean, they initiated it with the knowledge of the U.S. government in such a really, you know, gruesome, uh, deadly way. Actually, last week, um, we had a guest over talking about the Euromaidan in Ukraine. And it seems like the exact same thing of the snipers shooting at people. Uh, it, it, it seems like I, I was shocked when you told me this because my, um, my guest who was there at the Euromaidan crisis told me the exact same thing about it being a false. So I guess the repeated use of the same tactic um, and the fact that the CIA already admitted it and the Bush White House admitted it makes me, um, it's very interesting. So can you talk about, uh, um, our, our, I just wanted to, I don't know if you have the figures on the top on top of your head, but I do. Um, according to the World Bank, the GDP increased from 50 billion to 454 billion today. So it's actually, Venezuela is actually an example of socialism working. Sure, yeah, the, right. I mean, they just, um, the National Assembly is like our Congress, you know, so it's uh, local elections, things like that. And so it was, um, 2014, I believe, is when they, uh, they were able to take the National Assembly. Um, 
and this is, uh, you know, I mean, they, it was just a time where there was a lower voter turnout. There was more, um, you know, there were economic problems that were really uh, surfacing at that time. And so there was uh, less of, a, of electoral fervor and people coming out excited to vote. Um, and they were able to, you know, that politics in Venezuela is very localized too, right? So where there's, uh, the poor areas are predominantly pro-government, and then the richer, more middle-class, upper-middle-class areas are typically more opposition. And so they're able to win a majority of seats in the National Assembly simply because some of these areas in Venezuela, they're like all opposition people. And so while well, you can win a national election for president because you have the majority of people in the country, but you can't win a majority in the National Assembly because there's entire locales that are all uh, you know, opposition-minded people. And so um, you know, they won uh, the National Assembly. They weren't able to, to win the presidency. Um, and that was a close election also. I mean, Maduro, uh, I'm sorry, uh, you know, won by like a small, small margin. You know, it was like a 51% to 49% or, or something like that. It was, it was- By the way, um, let's just mention that around 2014, Hugo Chavez died of cancer. Right. Yeah, I mean, and that was just a, just a massive blow. It was really unexpected. I mean, I remember um, that time, it was just like a complete surprise. And so it was, everyone was just devastated and and scared because people didn't know where where things were going to go because you know chavez was the revolution i mean the it wasn't it's not called a socialist movement in venezuela it's called a chavista movement in venezuela people call themselves chavistas not i mean they call themselves socialists too but it's the ideology and leadership of chavez that was the glue holding everything together uh and so just off that fact so it, it, so he was of course um you know a anointed Maduro as, as his successor, but of course that, that alone. Um, hold on, let's just clarify that. So Maduro was his vice president, right? Yeah, Maduro is his vice president. Maduro is someone who had a really long history in the, in the workers and communist movement. And um, then following, uh, in the following election, Maduro ended up winning. Yes not dissimilar to how Reagan was followed by Bush. Right, right, exactly. And so, you know, he, um, you know, he became president upon Chavez's death, but then there was an election in 2014 where he had to run to, to keep that seat. And so, um, of course, everyone knew that Maduro was the, the successor to Chavez, but, but still, I mean, that not everyone who was a Chavez supporter came out and voted at all, let alone came out and voted for Maduro. And so it was a tight election. Um, uh, you know, he was running against someone that was uh, actually a, a coup plotter also, but someone who was trying to talk in populist Chavez-like language. So it wasn't like uh, we saw in the last election where it was like the opposition being like, we need to smash Chavismo versus Chavismo. It was um, a politician that was trying to talk in the same language of Chavez. And so, you know, it swept some people. So that's, so that, that being the circumstances of the election, um, you know, opposition parties took power in the National Assembly, even though they, they again lost the executive branch. Um, and so that remains till today, this, this opposition majority in the National Assembly. Um, but, you know, they, the National Assembly, instead of working in a way that was, you know, using their power to advance their own uh, agenda, they basically sabotaged the government. And the National Assembly, as soon as they... Sure, so when the National Assembly came to power uh, in 2014, they didn't just use the National Assembly to advance their own agenda and work within the system to kind of push the reforms they wanted and fight back against reforms they didn't want. They just basically became like an, uh, 
a barrier to anything getting done. So like you need the National Assembly to pass certain laws. You need the national, you know, it's like, it's a, you know, like just like we have here, there's checks and balances, anything the president wants to do has to go through congressional approval, all these things. So the National Assembly, they figured their role at that time was to further sabotage and destabilize and ruin the country. Uh, and so that gets into why there is that whole constituent assembly election in 2017, because, you know, everyone called it a power grab by Maduro to override. Wait one second. Um, you, I don't think people are familiar. So let's just back up sure. first. Um, so I, I know Mitch McConnell tried to sabotage Obama, mm -hmm. but can we get into a little bit of details? Like how many laws did the National Assembly try to pass around 2014 to 2013. Oh, I don't know that. I think it was like zero. <laughs> oh, right. Yep, um, exactly. Um, I, I, I think they tried one, which was to pardon all these <laughs> yeah. murderers uh -huh. or something right. like that. Um, and what other ways did they obstruct? Well, I mean, one of the big things is that, of course, the biggest problem in Venezuela is the economic problems, which, uh, you know, is a combination of things imposed on them from US sanctions, the OAS and the other hostile powers in the region, but also the big businesses in the country, which still exist and still produce the majority of goods that, that people need. in the UN and like going to other countries and trying to get foreign loans that weren't like IMF World Bank loans, um, National Assembly members would then go and talk them out of it and say, don't give the, us a loan. <laughs> and so using their power as elected politicians of Venezuela, they were able to use that position to then go out to everywhere where Venezuela was trying to get foreign loans from and sabotage that process to prevent the country from getting the foreign loans they needed uh, to, to help their recovery. And so it just shows the sinister nature, right? I mean, the opposition that supposedly cares so much about the Venezuelan people and wants to fix the country because it's doing so bad under the socialist leadership. I mean, they are the ones as like an open policy trying to make it as bad as possible for people and trying to sink the economy down as far as it can go. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about um, the big businesses burning food? Mm -hmm and other kinds of sabotage. Oh, oh one thing, uh, I, I mean, I do recall watching a video of a, of a big business just burning a whole warehouse of food. Like, um, what other types of sabotage have they done locally to make it right. hard? So one of the big things is, and, and like I mentioned earlier, right, when uh, Chavismo came to power, they didn't just nationalize all these big corporations. Um, you know, that's the, that's the criticism from the left, is you should have gone and nationalized all these corporations. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they couldn't really do that for a variety of reasons. But still today in Venezuela, despite the kind of formation of different economic units and people's power and so forth, these big corporations still exist and they produce things that are very important. For example, there's a company called Polar, which is like the biggest corporation in the country. And they produce like almost everything. They produce all the beer, they produce all the flour, they produce all the cooking oil. I mean, it's like all of the main foodstuffs and like things that you need, like the seven most common needed things are all produced by Polar. So that's just Polar, but imagine there's 
there's kind of a network of other big businesses that produce the really essential things that are needed in the country. And so um, one of the things they do is they will get together and decide what they're going to not produce. And so one of those things uh, was toilet paper. And so all of the corporations that produce toilet paper and paper product, they said they're not going to make, they're going to stop making toilet paper or they're going to make it and they're just going to release it on the black market. They're not at an exorbitant price. They're not going to release it into stores. And then so you have all these uh, news stations in the United States saying Venezuela doesn't have toilet paper. And of course, if you hear Venezuela doesn't have toilet paper, well, that sounds like a failed economy. If you can't produce toilet paper in your own country, um, then that means that they are undergoing a, a major failure. But it was just because these companies, these billionaires in a backroom deal decided that they're just going to stop making it or they're going to make it, ship it to Colombia, or they're just going to put it out on the black market. Um, one thing this, like, this kind of sabotage really concerns me is that in the U.S., there is more concentration. For example, ConAgra makes all of our food or 90% of it. Tyson has such a big monopoly. So hypothetically, if there was a President Sanders, how do we prepare for something like that? That's the thing. I mean, they wield so much power and you can't immediately form a counter to that because obviously the only thing you can do in that situation is either you seize the company and nationalize it and, and start and take it over and just start running it on your own and producing the toilet paper with workers that you bring in. Um, or you create your own modes of production and you actually start producing toilet paper independently of these big corporations. Um, and that takes an extremely long amount of time to do. And so that's really the phase that Venezuela is in right now. They're not going and arresting the business owners and taking over the company. What they're doing is they're just trying to make their own uh, economic power. And so you have uh, collectives and communes all producing all of these things like cooking oil and flour, all the things that they'd have to rely on the corporations for. They're working to produce it themselves so they don't have to rely on the companies. But of course, that's a slow process. It's a difficult process. And you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get to the level where you can feed the entire population based off that. So right, I mean, that's very well something that could happen in the United States. I mean, I do think that if, if Bernie Sanders won, the big corporations uh, would do everything they can to sabotage the economy just to say, look, socialism doesn't work. Um, but really, I mean, uh, there, there's not a lot of solutions to that. It's just this kind of part, I think, of the, the political struggle that, that begins when you, um, when you have kind of a, a new type of government come to power. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Um, do you want to talk about uh, Leopold Lo Leopoldo or is it Leopold mm -hmm. Lopez? Uh -huh. And he's one of the, he used to be, or he is one of the opposition leaders. Like, just talk about what he says and what he believes. Yeah, you know, he's another one of these guys that, you know, really any, any opposition leader that wants to come to power, they have to pretend that they're carrying on the real legacy of Chavez, you know, because Chavismo is so popular there. It's like they have to trick people because if they're just talking in their right wing uh, pro-capitalist politics, you know, they, they don't capture a, a large amount of the population. Um, and so, you know, he's someone who was involved in <laughs> multiple coup attempts. And so he was involved in the uh, 2002 coup. He actually was tasked with, with uh, arresting people with guns from the cabinet, things like that. Um, he did not go to jail. Uh, he was, again, involved in the 2014 uprising where he orchestrated um, protests that were killing people. I mean, the the thing that was always left out of the mass media was that 
the protest tactics weren't just to have a protest and barricade the streets and stop the cities from functioning, but it employed a, a large amount of violence that was both against um, the police and military forces, like you know, shooting them with guns and blowing them up with IEDs and shooting them with real rockets, uh, and also targeting and killing Chavistas and just random people. I mean, so many of the deaths at the opposition protests, both in 2014 and in 2017, people that were just killed by just people just shooting guns in, into the crowd, of, even of their own demonstration. I mean, a lot of opposition protesters were killed just by being shot by these makeshift weapons by, by other protesters. But Leopoldo Lopez was the one that was saying, going to the protesters, giving speeches, saying that we need to escalate the violence. Like we need to create, make a situation that's untenable for the government to control. And so by his direction, people were going out and committing these, these acts of violence and arson and, and things like that. So, you know, finally he was arrested for his role in, in this. Um, and so he's on, I think, house arrest, I believe now, and, and banned from running in the election. But, you know, he's one of the people lauded as a hero in the US press. And it's Venezuela is a dictatorship because Leopoldo Lopez isn't allowed to run for president in the election. It's like, well, if he had done half the things he did there in the United States, you know, he'd, he'd have a life sentence already. Um, and so that's just kind of the, the twisting of the opposition figures that the US media does, or people that are involved in really serious violent crimes that, you know, and he's being charged, you know, his, his charges are, you know, are pinning on him like 40 something deaths that were caused in, in these, these various violent demonstrations. And so, um, you know, a, a bad guy, but someone who's propped up as kind of like a, a JFK type liberator uh, in the United States. Uh, do you know where he went to university? Ooh, I don't. It was probably in the U.S. Harvard. Ah, Harvard. Yeah, of course. <laughs> they turn them out. <laughs> yeah, that was really interesting. Um, yeah. So now, um, I, I guess there's two things. Um, what's going on now with Guido, and what's the what's this nonsense that's coming out of the U.S.? Who with Guido? Oh, with Quito in Ecuador? No, no, no. The new opposition leader. Oh, uh, um, you know, I haven't heard the latest of what he's saying. I mean, here's, here's a, oh, he's the one that said he can take power in, when, in the new government. Yeah, yeah, and he's also um, talking about yeah. shooting people and stuff, yeah. Yeah, so, all right, so the last round of protests was in 2017, right? Um, and this was really a last gasp effort to take power by force through a mass movement because there was a presidential election coming up in 2018, and I believe it's a, it's an eight-year term when you win the presidential election. So that's quite a, a bit of time. And so the, op, the protests in 2017 were increasing in violence and, and desperation because they didn't want to let it get to that election in 2018. Um, and so one of the demand, the demands of the protests were Maduro to step down and let the opposition take power. Um, and a kind of minimal demand was have immediate presidential elections now in the midst of the protests, which would have been logistically impossible because you couldn't, I was there at that time and like, you just couldn't go anywhere sometimes because like highways would be closed because of protests, things like that. So like to have an election at a time of like, where you can't like drive down the street um, would, you know, and where they would only allow voting to happen in areas where people are going out to vote for the opposition, that was kind of an obvious, uh, you know, thing to not do to quell the protests. And so 
the protest movement was kind of aimed at overthrowing the government or forcing an election before the real legitimate election was going to happen. And the reason that they were doing that is because they knew that they couldn't win a real election. Um, just like they, you know, the PSUV won like 20 out of the last 22 elections in Venezuela, you know, the, those two that they lost being when the National Assembly uh, was able to, uh, to take power uh, by the right wing. Um, so they, the protests were, were increasing in desperation because, and there was, that's why there was more of a media fervor around it, why there was more violence, why uh, there is just, it was much more intense than what we saw in 2014, because they knew that they would get crushed in a democratic election in 2018 and didn't want to let it get to that point. <laughs> and so the election comes around in 2018, the opposition says, we obviously can't win, so let's just all boycott the election. And then when Maduro wins uncontested, then they'll say, this is a dictatorship. No one was allowed to run against him. And we need foreign countries to come take him out or we need to have a coup ourselves to take him out. So the whole idea was to frame it as there's no democracy because no one's running. Um, but what happened is one of the, uh, Fal this guy Falcone, who's an opposition leader, he decided to run. And the US government and the opposition was very mad when he decided to run because it ruined their whole image of Maduro's running uncontested. So this opposition figure, runs against Maduro and just gets absolutely crushed, um, doesn't come close to, I think Maduro beat him by uh, several million votes um, uh, in a relatively, you know, like a, a lo lowish turnout for the presidential election, but, but Maduro still won with like a, an 80% or something like that. Um, and so that kind of showed that the opposition, which was claiming to be so popular that Maduro needed to step down from the presidency, you know, they showed that they couldn't muster anything in a democratic election. And so that initiated a new phase, right? And so Venezuela was very concerned when Maduro was inaugurated um, in January of this year for his, his new term, that that told the opposition that they're not going to win, they have to wait a long time for the next presidential election. And so the only way they're going to take power is by force or by a foreign overthrow. Um, and so, yeah, and so that they're not going to give up on that plan. And so this latest opposition figure that you mentioned, um, you know, he put out, and it was interesting because I saw it reported by the U.S. media saying, opposition leader ready to take power in Venezuela. And it's like, well, what, what do you mean ready to take power? He means that when they have a coup like they did in 2002, he's ready to, to assume the, the presidency. And so... Um, I don't know, what, what is this that, about shooting people, though? I hadn't heard that. Oh, okay. I, I don't know if you speak Spanish, but I was just watching one of his videos, mm -hmm. and he basically, um, he was very close. He didn't, he quite, okay, he didn't literally say, hey, bring out your guns and start shooting Maduro supporters, mm -hmm. but he was using a lot of euphemisms about that. So mm -hmm. he was very close to towing the line. Um, one thing... Uh, I guess you, you might want to mention that's different is when Obama was obstructed by the GOP, he just filed executive orders. Mm -hmm. What did Maduro do that was different, but more democratic? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a really great point, right? Because you can, if you have the presidency, you can just totally override, use executive power to get around that. Um, so Maduro could have easily just actually disbanded the National Assembly or just gone use executive power to go completely around them. Um, <clears throat> but, but keep in mind, the violent protests are happening at this time. And so the, the PSUV, and, and they knew that if they went out and just said, we're just abolishing this part of the government, all this. So it wasn't, it, it, was, it was partially about getting around the abstentionist sabotage of the National Assembly. 
but also <clears throat> they wanted to find a way to reach out to the opposition and settle these things peacefully. I mean, the, I just, so the, I just want to say quickly before, the opposition was employing a massive amount of violence. I mean, that was their way of taking power on the streets, massive and massive amounts of violence. Just like you have this opposition leader now talking about shooting people. It's like, that's all they have. They need to create violence and chaos to create some kind of international scandal where foreign powers come in and help. But that doesn't mean that the Chavez supporters aren't strong, don't have guns, and aren't capable of that also. But the PSUV put out to all the Chavistas and all the colectivos, right, like armed militias that are in these areas that are getting burned down by these opposition protests. The PSUV put out to all Chavistas, do not engage, do not use any violence in response, do not fight back, like we need to solve this peacefully. So if you're gonna take political action, go to a pro-government peaceful march, but do not go out and fight these opposition people. And so that's why opposition people, like when I saw them, were just roaming through the streets, setting shit on fire, um, you know, breaking windows, just doing whatever they wanted when there's, they're really a minority. And then if the Chavistas came out to confront them, they would run home very, very quickly. But they're under so much discipline to just not do that and just to try to solve oh, things. Oh, no, people. Getting at the constituent assembly that they got instead of like having to, go ahead. Absolutely, yeah, and so that's, that's the context behind it is that they're employing this large amount of violence. They could have just gone in and just defeated them with numbers if they really wanted to confront them, but they didn't want to do that. And so uh, Maduro and, and the government, they evoked this amendment of the constitution that said you could rewrite the constitution and create this new body called the constituent assembly. So the way the constituent assembly was portrayed was just as a way uh, for Maduro to seize power, to override the right-wing national assembly, the opposition-controlled national assembly, and stack the deck with all his supporters in like an alternative national assembly. But it wasn't meant to be that at all. In fact, they wanted the Constituent Assembly to be a place where the opposition and the Chavistas could work together in a democratic way to solve the problems of the country. And it was a challenge put to the opposition, saying if you're really serious about fixing this country, fixing the economy, having your demands met, this is a body where you can do that. And so the Constituent Assembly was initiated this democratic process that was really similar to what we discussed earlier, where they created a new constitution, where at all local levels, and I was there for this time, so I witnessed it, where just small meetings were happening all over the country to discuss what the Constituent Assembly was, what it could do, and how you can run candidates and be elected to it. So it's like a 500-something member body that has people from guaranteed from different locales, different uh, professions, people who are disabled, indigenous people, all these different sectors that are guaranteed spots in the Constituent Assembly, and everyone was open to running it. And in fact, they wanted, the whole point was to get the opposition to run in it so they could mediate all of these problems peacefully. Uh, but of course, the opposition refused to take part in it. Um, and, but the government really wanted them to. So they even kept delaying the deadlines to register as candidates, like begging the opposition to run. They're like, just run, just join the Constituent Assembly and we can all, we're all Venezuelans, we can all sit down in the same room and we can solve these problems peacefully. The opposition refused. In fact, they employed violence the day of the voting for the Constituent Assembly to try to uh, prevent people from voting. They actually killed, assassinated candidates for the Constituent Assembly. Um, so that was their response to this. And so that the Constituent Assembly, of course, was a defense mechanism that, to be able to make the country function and, and create a body that was necessary to continue the function of the country, also in anticipation of the opposition taking power because um, of course, they didn't know if in the election coming in uh, 2018, if 
you know, it was possible the opposition could win in their minds. And so part of the Constituent Assembly was putting in new rights into the Constitution so it'd be harder for the opposition to undo all of the social gains if they, if they did come to power. Um, so that was, that was it essentially. I mean, it was a really inspiring thing to see because, you know, living in the United States where there is, um, there is political activism and participation, but it's, it's at a pretty low level. But at that time, like any time you were driving around Caracas, you would just see like on the side of the street, like under an overpass, like a hundred people gathered and they were all talking about the Constituent Assembly and, and having a meeting about it. So there were just, you know, it was just a highly democratic thing that happened. But of course, the opposition didn't want to take part. They wanted their, uh, you know, fascist road to power versus a democratic one. For me, what shocks me is that they've seen what a U.S. invasion does in Iraq, Syria, mm -hmm. Libya, and the fact that they would be goading to have the U.S. come in is, um, I, don't, I don't even know what to call it because they know what the end result is. Well, yeah, I mean, it's all they have, though. I mean, it's like instead of just saying, okay, we accept that there's a, a socialist government now and we're just going to exist within it. I mean, they, um, they don't want to accept that. And so really the reason that they, there is a demand for a foreign invasion, and that's actually when we were talking to protesters on the ground, they were saying that it's not just the opposition leaders that are telling people to create chaos so then they can ask in secret meetings for the U.S. to come in. I mean, it was the people on the ground saying, please tell your government to come save us, you know. Um, but it, it, that just shows the level of uh, anti-communism in the country by these. It's not a majority sector. It's a small sector. Um, and it's a sector of, you know, as I said, predominantly the upper classes and upper middle classes. Um, but not all, of course, there's, there's a variety of people that are involved in those protests. But, but yeah, I mean, the reason that they would favor something that is so devastating in other countries is because that's kind of the level of, um, of reaction to uh, Chavismo in, in the country. Um, yeah, and also there's, you know, a level of naivete. I mean, it's like, you know, it's just because the U.S. destroyed Libya and Iraq. I mean, there's plenty of other countries that, that want the U.S. to come install them in power, also not realizing the you know, real impact it would have. You know, they could think, oh, well, it'll be different here because of this or that. But. Guatemala, El Salvador, mm -hmm. where they were like raping nuns. Yeah. Um, uh, what, what, one last um, question. Mm -hmm. I, I know, uh, do you have some time? Or... Sure, yeah. Okay. In that case, we might want to do something fun yeah. too. But uh, um, I, I, I guess, uh, what was my question? Oh, it had to do with the, Constituency Assembly, mm -hmm. um, like how are they able to override the National Assembly? Are you, are you familiar with that or is it so, still? Yeah, it's not so much that they're overriding the National Assembly. In fact, the, it says that the Constituent Assembly is supposed to work in tandem with the National Assembly, right? It has its own power and its own ability to do things, but it's ultimately like part of a larger a democratic network of which the National Assembly is involved. And so it's not like the Constituent Assembly is elected and then the National Assembly is abolished and the Constituent Assembly is the new National Assembly. So the, the National Assembly as it exists, even though they didn't run and win any candidates in the Constituent Assembly, the National Assembly could still hold the Constituent Assembly accountable and, and play some role in it. But of course, they're, they're refusing to do that also. And so that it's just a myth that it just completely abolished the National Assembly. It still exists and they can work with the Constituent Assembly if they want to. And of course they extended that invitation to the National Assembly, but they uh, you know, they don't want they don't want that because it's it's too democratic. <laughs> and they lose in any kind of democratic field. But what it does have power to do is a power to create new rights in the Constitution. And that's kind of the main 
the main purpose of it. And so they're putting in uh, new LGBT rights, environmental rights, indigenous rights, um, expanding all of the gains that have been made. Because, you know, the last constitution was what? I mean, it was like 2000 when the new constitution came in. You know, the society is different. They have a different understanding of certain social issues, uh, of women's rights, of gay rights, all these things. And so it's, it's a way to kind of cement in and expand all of the things that they've accomplished over the last 20 years. Okay, it's kind of funny. Um, so it's kind of funny. Um, have you, do you know Adam Johnson from FAIR? He did a long thread yeah. of people they compared to Chavez. Um, and uh -huh. it's kind of funny. So it seems like, so if we go through it, it's like, is Trump just like Chavez? Is Corbyn just like Chavez? Is Bernie Sanders <laughs> just like Chavez? So it seems like, so anyone that's against the US, they do this Washington Post do a thread, uh, mm -hmm. uh, article on if they're just like Chavez. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it would seem so. Um, and it's funny because it's like, what does that really mean? Are they just like Chavez, meaning that they have a mass base of support that's a clear majority in the country and that wants to, you know, take power out of the hands of big banks and give it to like people, you know? So it's like, that's what it really means when they say that. But of course, the way they present it is, are they like dictators, right? Um, and that's kind of the, the way that they approach it in the mass media. And it, even, you know, whenever you talk to people at Venezuela that aren't really uh, into politics, I mean, they ex this has been drilled in their head so much, they just assume that, that Venezuela is a, a dictatorship. And so it's it, getting back to what we discussed earlier, it's like the reason they put that language out there is kind of conditioning. And then they tell people, oh, well, if you're a socialist like Corbyn or Bernie Sanders, um, that means you want undemocratic rule. You want rule by, um, you know, like mob rule or whatever, whatever they call it. So it's to elicit this type of fear. But if people knew the real story of Chavez, they would see that headline and be like, oh, man, Bernie Sanders like Chavez. I'm going to vote for him. Exactly. Uh, apparently, they even put, went as far as saying, is Melanchon just like Chavez? <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. I think a lot of times um, democracy gets very tricky because it is a rule by the majority, but in America it's mm -hmm. often used as code for crony capitalism or capitalism. And mm -hmm. I think that's why even though the day after he wins an election you see a Washington Post article saying, is he a dictator? Yeah, because, and it's like they they know, they put things in place to, to call question into the elections too, because, you know, the, the PSUV just, you know, usually wins in a landslide, especially in the national elections. You know, they do very well because they have a really solid, active base of support. Um, and so the only way to delegitimize that election is to put fake stories out that call it into question. And so as the election of Maduro was happening, even though he won by this clear majority, they, they planted all these fake things like the Chavistas were buying votes and there's all this voter fraud. There's this picture of them destroying this box of like all these fake stories that went out. So then even though you have a clear landslide democratic victory that is observed by like the more international observers than any election that has the most like detailed things in place to audit an election, like using your fingerprint, using an ID, like all the things that you can call it back and prove that every vote is valid and all of this, even though you go through every single measure to make sure your election is validated and proven correct, as long as these little stories get out in the mass media, oh, there was buying of votes or something like that, then you can say, oh, well, they're a dictatorship, even though they had an election, the election was but fake. To me, um, odd, you, just mm -hmm. the buying of votes, unless it's like, I'll give you $10 and you vote for me. If it's like, 
right. it's not buying a vote. It's if you say something like, oh, <laughs> if you vote for me, I will nationalize the oil or I'll make sure everyone has a chicken in their pot. That sounds like a campaign right. promise. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they try to twist these little things. And really the biggest thing that they twisted was like, um, there was this thing, it was put out that, that the Chavez people and the military were like intimidating opposition voters. And the reason the opposition had such a low turnout is because they were like threatened with violence at their polling stations and so forth. And so that's just another example of the reality being totally turned on its head because it's the opposition that was attacking uh, polling places in Chavista areas. And so there was like, over a hundred different violent attacks on voters and polling places where people were going to vote for Maduro. And so it's a similar where they say now that they shut down all uh, opposition media when in fact the opposition was shutting down pro-government media. It's the same thing with the use of violence at polling places. They say it was Chavistas putting violence on opposition voters when it was really the opposite. And, and well, for me, one thing that was so stark um, was a few Christmases ago, it's, it's such an Aurelian thing. Um, Maduro apparently seized toys from this warehouse to make sure every kid had a toy. <laughs> and they made it seem uh -huh. like that was a, a dictatorial thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, especially because the toys are being hoarded. I mean, this is like part of the, they were intentionally being kept by these big companies. I mean, that's, that's one of the things I was talking about earlier where they, either they don't produce the toilet paper or they produce it and they just keep it locked in their warehouse. So this is another thing, they wanna create misery. They do the same thing with diapers and things like that. Like they try to create misery in the country by hoarding all of the products everyone needs. And then when the government discovers where the stockpiles are being hoarded, which the government actually paid for, right? Like yeah. gave money to the companies to produce this stuff. They go in and they take it and then it's a dictatorship because the military has gone into this private property and seized the things. And so, but that's why the Toy Story was so funny because it was like, <laughs> how can you spin this in a negative way that Maduro is seizing toys that are just gonna rot in this warehouse to give out <laughs> to people on Christmas? I mean, you know, that's how little they have to work with. You know what I mean? It's like, they have such a hard time painting the government as bad. They just find these fake stories or try to spin stories like this that show him to be- um, By the way, um, how do people find you on Twitter? Sure, I'm at Mike Preisner, P-R-Y-S-N-E-R, -E um, and also at Empire Files. You can find uh, I work there. And I also have a podcast with, a, I'm an Iraq war veteran, and I have a podcast with an Afghanistan war veteran about, a, this is like a socialist perspective on foreign policy and military issues, and it's called Eyes Left, and it's at Eyes Left. Excellent. Um, I hope everyone subscribes to your podcast. Um, do you have any last comments or anything I forgot to ask you about? Well, the last thing I'll say about Venezuela is, you know, I, like I said, I went in 2017 when it looked like things were like coming down, right? That the opposition was strong. It was succeeding in shutting down the country. It had gotten all of the international powers, um, you know, aligned with the U.S. To, to attack it in worse ways than ever before. You have Trump come in, which he really put so many, you know, Obama, I think, in his entire tenure put like seven sanctions on, on Venezuela. Trump comes in and puts like dozens of different sanctions on Venezuela. So the situation, when I was going to Venezuela, I was like, well, this is the end. This is the end of the Bolivarian revolution. I mean, everything is stacked against it. Um, Chavez is gone and, and all of these other problems. So I was feeling like a very negative about the situation. And I've, you know, I've been following um, Venezuela since 
uh, Chavez went to the UN and called Bush the devil and, and inspired me to, because <laughs> I'd hated Bush at that time as a young soldier. Um, and so I was, I was very pessimistic about the situation. But when you go to Venezuela, despite all the problems, despite the power that the opposition has to shut down the country with violence, and despite you know, the highly organized opposition leadership and you know, the real impact that the CIA and, and Pentagon is having and, and trying to overthrow the country and all of that, um, I realized being there that Chavismo itself is like such a political force that it is not in danger of of being overthrown. I mean, <clears throat> Chavismo is so popular, so powerful. I mean, every single poor neighborhood we went to, we could stop anyone on the street and ask them a question about politics or the United States, and they would be able to give you, you know, better answers than we got from like the experts, the professors and government leaders that, that we interviewed and things like that. I mean, political consciousness is so high in the country and there's such a commitment to Chavez's legacy. And so that made me realize like it doesn't, you know, Maduro, for as, you know, as great as I think he is, and, and many people think he is, he's kind of irrelevant because Chavismo is its own social force, its own political power that exists independent of whatever uh, candidate wins the election. And no matter what, whoever comes to power in Venezuela, you have to reckon with that mass political social force in the country. And so it's something that is not going to go away anytime soon. It's something that, you know, was born from Chavez, but he built it and he empowered it. And now it's its own living, breathing thing that, uh, that is a really powerful thing. And so I was very inspired being there, realizing that I, even though everything is stacked against it, um, you know, the fact that so many poor people are empowered and feel that they have power and are not going to let it go um, and are finding their own ways to circumvent the problems of the big corporations and the violent protests and all of that, uh, it made me feel very positively about the future of Venezuela, even though they are under the worst attacks and the, you know, it is a very desperate, dire situation and the U.S. could really escalate things in this next phase under Maduro's uh, new term. Um, but that, that also shows that if the, if the opposition came to power, they would have to implement like Pinochet-style fascism to be able to rule the country because that's why the coup failed so quickly in 2002. That same thing would happen today. I mean, the, the Chavistas are, are ready and powerful and a mass, mass sector of the population that um, you know, anyone is going to have to reckon with. Either you do that uh, democratically working with them, or you do that by just trying to arrest and, and kill all of them. Um, so yeah, so I think that, the, that I, was, I was inspired by the level, um, and I think that other people should too. And that's why it's important for us in our part in the United States, or if you live in another country, hostile in Venezuela, we have to fight that fight here too. I mean, we have to be confronting our government. To, uh, I'll just interrupt you because right now um, Caracas yeah. is trending and apparently oh. um, the Venezuelan National Guard um, arrested eight people for trying to steal weapons from the military. Mm. Oh yeah, I mean, that's, wow, really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, they know that this is their only method, right, is violence. And the, the danger of a coup is very real, an armed coup. And we know that this has been building. We know that they arrested a few months ago several military people who were planning a coup. I mean, there were those, I don't know if you remember during, in 2017, like the videos they released, like they were looking, they have black ski masks on and assault rifles that were like issuing a threat to the government. And so it's, it's a real, real threat. I mean, there was just that assassination attempt on Maduro not too long ago. I mean, that was planned from inside the country by these people. And yeah, with the drone, I mean, this is, this is horrible. I mean, it, it, I mean, 
it's just like, uh, I mean, the first time anyone's ever attempted an assassination like that, but this shows the level that it's at. They know they've lost the battle of democracy and they can only win through fascist violence. And so I'll just say the only fortunate thing with that is that they have very little room to do that from within the military. That's why there are these like paramilitary groups, like Colombian paramilitaries are involved. Like Colombia is a big part of trying to overthrow the government with the United States of Venezuela. But you know, the, the military is, is like predominantly uh, pro Maduro and pro Chavez um, because after that first coup in 2002, like all the right wing officers really like got purged from the military um, because of the real danger that, that they posed. But now like I, um, I was in the office of um, the head of the, the uh, National Guard, the, the military in, in Venezuela. And I was in his, his office waiting room, right, before going into his office. And it's just all books and posters. And I realized that all of the books in his office are either by Fidel Castro or Che Guevara. And so that showed me what the military leadership is like now in Venezuela. Uh, and so it's, it's, it will be hard if they want to launch an armed coup because the military plus the colectivos, I mean, they really will overwhelm that. Um, but I think the scary thing is, is that the opposition knows that. And I think their goal and anything that they do is to elicit help from the United States. So even if they have attempt, even if they are able to seize power for a moment and they won't be able to hold on to it, as soon as they do that, they're going to be asking for the OAS and the U.S. to, um, to intervene, to protect them and keep them in power. And so that's... Actually, um, some good news on that front. It seems like uh, the term, I mean, Nicolas Maduro mm -hmm. has been talking to Russia, India, and China mm -hmm. to kind of... Uh, keep them, yeah, yeah, l l right. I guess, three big nuclear powers to like, I don't to, know, mm -hmm. to prevent, the, to deter mm -hmm. the U.S. I yeah, guess. and that's important because that's really the only way the opposition can take power is if the U.S. intervenes to help. And they know that. And so that I would expect them to grow increasingly desperate to try to do that. Um, but this is just another example. I mean, these are things that they're trying to thwart every day. Um, and so I'm not surprised that this happened, uh, this breaking news that you just told me, but um, there's going to be more of it. And it's scary, too, because the last coup plot that was uncovered in, I think, 2015, the last big coup plot that they routed out and uncovered, I mean, the things that were involved in this coup plot were really crazy. Like, one of the things that they were going to do, the coup plotters, was they were going to blow up the Telesur building, the main Telesur television studios in Caracas. They were going to bomb the building and destroy it as, like, the first act of their coup, so then Telesur couldn't broadcast anymore what was happening with the coup. And so... These are not people that care about the people of Venezuela or that care about the future of their country. They're people that are just concerned uh, with their own increasing wealth and power, and, and they're willing to do quite a lot of heinous things uh, to get it. So, um, you know, that's why it's important to, you know, do what you're doing and others who do work on this subject to kind of dispel all the myths that are put out, because ultimately it's going to come down to whether or not the United States is able to intervene. And of course, the role we play in the United States, um, you know, can be a, a factor. Well, that was a very powerful ending. Thank you for coming. And this was very, very illuminating. And I hope you get a chance to go again and cover more stuff. I hope so too. Thanks for having me, Asha. Have a good uh, rest of the Thanks day. Thanks a lot, you too. Thank you for listening to Historically. I hope you enjoyed the show.